This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is True Crime XS. Okay, I thought we'd start. So we're moving back to serial killers. We obviously had a lot of holiday episodes that came out that weren't serial killer related. And I thought we'd start moving back to that. But I didn't want to just like dive completely into that because there was some true crime news. I sort of wanted to include in in what we were doing. One thing I will say is it's this week is the 25th. I think it's the 25th anniversary of Mikkel Biggs. Is it? Yeah. I, I, uh, she's 99. So, you know, they have a, a sort of person of interest in that case that's doing 200 years in prison or whatever. But I always think about her. For people that don't know, Mikkel Biggs was last seen riding her bicycle in Mesa, Arizona, January the 2nd of 1999. Uh, she was with her sister, and they thought they um, heard an ice cream truck in the distance. So they asked her mom for some money, uh, and then she just vanished that so i always think of her this time of year something about her case that i always uh remember is it was so quick she was there and then she wasn't there and her her bike was out on the road and the wheel on her bike was still moving yeah from where it had come to rest and that's haunting to me yeah, there's, yeah, it is haunting. There was a there was another case nearby where uh, this older woman had uh, basically been attacked and uh, assaulted, and someone was arrested for that. So, like, that's always been the person of interest for the police. But I think of her this time of year. Uh, if, if you want to, like, I, I know she's on all the sites out there, and there's, I think there's even a. Um, maybe a documentary or a, U- a good YouTube on her, but uh, Mikkel Diane Biggs, um, if she were alive today, she'd be 36 years old. Uh, I always think of her and I wanted to mention her here because uh, we had done so many missing persons in a row. And like, I, there are multiple pictures of her that kind of stand out in my head, big smiling face. And I had a couple pieces of true crime news. Did, did you hear about this teenager uh, that was found in the trap door. Yes. This is a weird one for me. And like, I, when I hear about these cases, I wonder, I think about, uh, the ways that it could go down, but, uh, ultimately a 16 year old North Carolina girl was found under the trap door in the bedroom under a trap door in the bedroom of a, I think he's 35 years old positive that guy got arrested but this girl had been missing from um, Fayetteville North Carolina for like a month and uh, she met him online and he originally told her he was 19 and then when they meet in person uh, she questioned why he looked so much older because you know she's 16 and he's clearly not 19 and he told her that he was 25 and eventually she gets to his house and meets his family and turns out that he's 34 and then he wouldn't let her leave. Uh, that's going to be a kidnapping situation there. Um, as far as 
like the the charges. I think he got statutory rape, unlawful imprisonment, assault, strangulation. And he lived with his mom at least, right? It was his mom or his mom and grandma. It was <laughs> the story. You can find it out there. The guy's name is Zachary Jones. And they don't talk about the girl because she is clearly underage. Didn't that make, it made me wonder, like, because the mom cooperated with law enforcement, right? Yeah. But it made me wonder, like, how does that even happen with her there, right? I mean, I know the guy's a grown man, but at the same time, it seems like um, that would come up, right? The girl yeah. uh, under the trap door. Yeah. So the mom said she thought the girl was 18 or 19, one or the other. The girl had run away from her grandparents' house. And the story that they initially give after she's found is that grandmother had kicked her out. And th- there was a lot of commentary from the mom in a news article where she said she had all these piercings and tattoos, I think is how she said it. And the story that was told, it gets sensationalized and publicized because of the trapdoor situation. Uh, the trap door, whatever it is, the way he tells investigators when, when he's talking to them is that she decided to get in there to hide from the police. So there's something going on there. I don't think it's going to be he's any kind of serial predator. He's just a predator. I don't think I saw that part. What did he say? He said she got in there to hide from the police? Y- yeah, there's, like, there's a couple of different things. But he said she hid in there on her own free will. She was in the bed when the police officers first came in, but then she hid. So they have a couple of different things where the grandparents are talking about her and she just left the house, cut off her phone and went with this guy. But I'm highlighting this one and I'm not giving tons of details on it. One, because I don't know what happened to this girl. And I think it's none of it's good. When, when I hear people online say, Oh, they had sex three or four times and this, 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 um, no, he assaulted her. She's, he knew she was a 16-year-old girl, which is why he said he was 19. Even if she said she was 19, he should have known. And he's 34 years old. Yeah, that's really bad. I was shocked that things like this are still happening. But I I guess I'm just kind of ignorant in 2024. Well, I mean, clearly there's – I could see a lot of ways that this could have been prevented, right? Uh, but you're, you're right. Um, I, I don't know that you're ignorant. I just think – Maybe you have high expectations. I, I don't really know. Um, this is clearly not a situation where a 16-year-old should be. But, you know, if she's lying about her age, yeah, I, I, I don't it's know. It's complicated, I, yeah. I don't know really where the line is, but uh, I'm glad that it has worked out this way. Uh, yeah, I'm glad that she's, like, been recovered. That's, like, the thing that I was thinking. I was like, okay, she's found. That's important. And I don't know what her situation was. I don't know what else they had uh, going on there. But I'm glad that authorities have set all of this up where they're going to dig into it. And I hope that whatever's supposed to happen there happens. I, I just can't believe that a 34-year-old man would, look, even if she's 19, let's just go ahead and say that. At least check. Because otherwise you just are a creepy perv. And, and like that's, <laughs> you're just kind of stuck Man, it's, it's so hard much to, wrapped up in that. I yeah, there's so it is so hard to talk about those cases now because like it's real easy. Everybody jumps on him online, which maybe we should. 
He is but, absolutely in the wrong. Yeah, yeah, he's in the wrong. But I'm saying from the perspective of let's let's let this play out in court is kind of where I, I, I land on that. Oh, certainly. And, you know, the, all the minimization and everything, um, I don't care if she was in the bed. When, I don't care if she did get in the trap door and was hiding. It. It doesn't matter. She's 16. She doesn't get to make choices like that, right? I mean, obviously she made the choices, but it's it's detrimental, right? Um, and of course, as like, you know, middle-aged adults, we know that, right? I would go so far as to say like having run away from her, her grandparents. I'm not sure like when you run away for your adventure uh, and to get out of whatever situation you don't want to be in, like, you know, if the situation you end up in is worse, um, I feel yeah. like you it, it may be a little counterproductive. Well, here's – so there were, there were a number of things there that were odd. And my understanding is what happened is they the local sheriffs get a, a domestic violence call on Christmas Day and they come check it out. And, and then this unfolds. And the sheriff even says, and one of the deputies in an interview that I was reading said, basically, he found out she wasn't the age she presented to him, and he wasn't the age he presented to her. So they're both lying to each other. But he's but, an adult. Right, but he's an adult. And, and what happens at that moment in time when you're 34 years old pretending to be 19 or 20 or whatever he was pretending, and you find out that you're with a 16-year-old, that's the moment that you go, oh. I need to rectify this situation right now, not take her home and have sex with her. Because he drove and picked her up. So he's going to have a different problem there. Do you think that he really believes she is 19? Um, it doesn't matter. He finds out her age and he threatens her instead of, like, so he he definitely discovered her age. They had been pulled over, I think, for speeding. And they had to present their IDs. That's my and I'm totally speculating now. That's my guess on when they discovered each other's ages were way off. I'm sure there was some kind of BS that might have been mutual. doesn't matter. The adult has the responsibility to say, I need to end this terrible situation before it gets worse. If they were pulled over um, and presented their IDs or whatever, he should just hand it over right then. Yeah. Uh, but he instead he got he apparently got Malvi and started threatening. I don't know how far he took those threats, whether it really was just Malvi or if it was like legitimate communicating threats. Either way, that's like uh, he said he was going to hurt the deputy that had pulled them over. He said he was going to hurt her, and that's where you move into terrible territory. It wasn't good to begin with, and now you're in you know you're in felonious territory. So you need to stop it before you get her home and do something worse. But he, he uh, apparently is not the brightest bulb there, so I am sure that he is going to get uh, hopefully what's coming to him. Uh, I just thought that was a weird thing to happen over the holidays. The other one was: Did you see this uh, this judge in Nevada? I think the entire universe saw that. He said he had a bad day. Yeah. That guy is exactly where he needs to be. Let me ask you um, just real quick. I know you sent me the clip. Did you watch like the the like 13 minute clip? Yeah, 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 yeah. I okay. saw the whole I saw the whole like you're talking about the hearing up to this 
the ending, right? Where the prosecutor's talking and then he has, uh, the defendant has the opportunity to speak and he speaks and boy, does he ever speak. And like, he just basically says the same thing over and over again. And uh, then his attorney kind of steps in and what they were getting at was, I, I couldn't really hear the prosecutor on the video I watched, but basically he was saying like what the state uh, wanted as far as punishment goes because he had pled guilty, right? Right. Um, and then this, uh, so he had failed to show up in court in December, and I'm not really sure what brought him there that morning, uh, but he had been, uh, a bench warrant had been issued for his arrest because he failed to appear for sentencing. But when he's standing there, he's wearing a t-shirt and casual pants. He's not in any sort of like prison garb, right? Um, so he had turned himself in, I guess. So here, here's what happened. For people who haven't seen this, you can go, I'm sure it's on YouTube at this point, um, and multiple news outlets played it. This is a 30-year-old guy named uh, Diabra Redden, which is spelled like Deborah with an O, D-E-O-B-R-A, Redden, R-E-D-D-E-N. He was in a Las Vegas courtroom, and he was being sentenced on a charge of attempted battery with substantial bodily harm. His attorney at the time is uh, talking back and forth with the prosecutor to the judge, and they're basically trying to decide what to do with a guilty plea on this attempted battery charge. The attorney lays out a pretty good uh, spiel that's pretty typical of what you hear. Uh, And if you see the longer clip, the defendant does talk way too much. But the idea was the attorney has set it up to, you know, you never know if this is BS or not when they start talking, to explain to the judge that this guy has a brand new job. He has, quote, plans to resume his education, which is what every defense attorney says to you know a judge during sentencing unless their clients just off the rails they were talking like literally talking about his him having mental health issues and he said he was trying to learn from his mistakes but then the the judge is a woman named mary Kay holthus she starts reading his criminal history just out loud just like checking it off and his criminal history is lots of felonies, lots of misdemeanors, multiple domestic violence charges, robberies, attempted home invasion. And she basically says that because he has so many felonies, that she doesn't feel like probation is appropriate for uh, what they're going to sentence him to. I feel like that quote's important. Yeah, and you're right. He is. Because I only saw him at first. The very first time I saw it, I only saw him from behind. So it's just him, like, supermanning. Well, the only reason I noticed was because he's clearly not in a, a jail jumpsuit, right? And so oh, yeah, you're, I, you're right. He's in street clothes. Right, and he walks up of his own accord when his case is called, right? Right, right. You know, this judge has already issued a bench warrant on somebody, which means, like, he's he, he is, whether he knows it or not, he was on the shit list long before this event takes place. Because um, if you don't show up, a judge knows you don't respect the process. So the attorney in this I video. Well, I don't feel like that. I think that he like put himself on the shit list. That's and what I said. I, and I, well, I know, but I don't think the judge is like, I don't think her put it, sentencing him is like a shit list sentence. No, 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 no. Okay. Well, it doesn't really start out that way. But so he tries, the attorney jumps in, not the defendant, Redden. 
The attorney jumps in and basically says he believes that his client will complete the probation, blah, blah, blah. And this is one of the problems people have with the criminal justice system is people get chance after chance after chance. And the judge is, she's not being super judgmental here. She's just saying she appreciates what the attorney has said. And she literally says, I think it's time that he gets a taste of something else because she just can't imagine with this history. And she doesn't get to say anything else because Diabra Redden cuts her off. He says, fuck that bitch. And then he runs towards the judge and Superman's arms out over the bench and takes the judge against the wall. He knocks out the flagpole holding the flag behind the bench and he takes her all the way to the ground and they disappear underneath the judge's bench, like from view. And then multiple people get involved, including a clerk and a marshal. Now the clerk is sitting to the right of the judge when the video starts and he's just trying to get between them, but he doesn't know what to do. Right. But I don't know if you, I was very fascinated by this. Um, I have to say, I'm not condoning this behavior. However, for what it is and the fact that it's already happened, if you're only going to watch one in-court camera review this entire year, this is the one to watch. I've never seen anything like it. I I haven't either. But um, I believe his name is uh, the law clerk that was sitting, uh, that's to the right hand side from the audience. His name is Michael Lasso. Okay. And when he, when the defendant says his remarks as she starts, she, cause she, the judge is looking down reading the, you know, by the power of the state of Nevada and she's going to sentence him. And the law clerk actually, I think, and, and maybe I'm over speaking here, but I really feel like if he had hit her with full force without the law clerk's hands on him, I think that he could have killed her, like, with her hitting her head on the wall. I I think, yeah, she hits the wall really hard. And like Meg is describing, the law clerk kind of cushions what's happening. He He grabs a hold of him. So, like, the full force didn't go on her, right? Correct. Like, he he deflects, basically. And there is a marshal close by that gets involved pretty quickly. And, you know... You it can, takes a second for everybody to figure out what's happening. Yeah, nobody... It all happens so fast. But it is worth watching this video. And, like, it, I agree with you. If, if you're going to only watch one court video this year, this is the one to watch. Uh, I've seen attacks in courtrooms. I've physically been standing there when defendants do stupid shit. Um, I've never seen anything like this. And the fact that they are able to break this up this quickly is sort of a miracle because he is like in a position to be on top of her and to hurt her. And uh, one particular marshal, and like right off the top of my head, I don't know his name, but he ends up with a head injury and some pretty serious, I think he got 30 stitches or something. His name is uh, Shane Brandon. Is it Shane Brandon? Okay. Mm -hmm. I've never seen anything like this where someone jumps over a bench. Um, This is one of the most tremendously stupid acts I have seen a defendant pull out of their pocket. Um, And this guy let us know 
in less than three seconds why he really doesn't deserve to be out of jail at all. And he had abs like what he was saying before all this happened, like not even a minute before. I don't know how long his attorney spoke, but he rambles on about his ability to do probation, right? Yeah. Uh, which is, I'm not really sure that that was the way to go with that, but whatever, that's what he said. Um, he had been on probation twice and successfully completed it. Now, you know, that usually means, I would say successful completion doesn't warrant a second time for another crime, much less a third, right? Yeah, the reason that you get the probation, not to cut it's, you off, is so that you stop doing the stupid shit you're doing that got you there. So just because you got through it and you were no longer on it, I still don't think it was successful. Now, she does say that, you know, she's going to give. I, I did think the remark was a little bit snide, but she's the judge, right? I've seen a lot more snide judges. I have seen, like, to, to warrant that type of reaction. Now, let me ask you this. If, if that judge had been, if the court was being represented by a male judge, do you think this guy would have done that? No, he's this guy. Honestly, this this guy strikes me as a as an overgrown bully. Uh, a bully. Yeah, that's the right word. I like. I look at him, and like he might be like tough in certain situations, but the truth is, he did this because he is scared to death of going to prison. And uh, I think prison's the perfect place for him. Now the problem is this. He's going to be worse when he gets out of prison. Unfortunately, yeah. I I, I would say that he's going to get, uh, I was just speculating, but I bet he gets 25 years for this. Yeah, so the the results of, of what happened here. Um, uh, you know that he the, in the follow-up, he says he was trying to kill her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's attempted murder of a judicial official. Well, as of right now, he has seven felony counts of attack on a protected person. For that incident. For th- for the jumping over the bench incident. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's where it currently sits. But it hasn't – like this has just happened. It hasn't hap- – uh, we have not had enough time for him to be indicted yet, but he will be. And that comment – is is gonna I think it'll be more than 25 years because I think I think whoever gets this uh, in terms of a prosecutor and a judge the Diabra or Deborah or De, whatever his name is Redden is about to find out uh, how how to make yourself be an example for something without even trying right and um, he he's going to wish he had been having a bad day that day. Yeah, because he's about to have a couple of real, real bad days that result in a couple of real, real bad years. I don't think he'll see the light of day for – I don't think he'll get out again for at least 15 years. Right. Now, um, I got – so because this is so – I mean, my impression of this is it just went crazy viral, right, because it is so incredible. Had a discussion with somebody about it, and uh, they felt like his reaction – was a reflection of him being mentally ill. And um, I was surprised by that. And it's entirely possible. But what I saw when I was um, watching the entire clip, it's mentioned that one of his foster or his foster mothers, no, his foster mom, she was sitting there in court 
she had agreed to allow her to stay with him uh, if, you know, when he was sentenced to probation, right? Yeah. And and I felt, and this man is 30 years old. Yep. Uh, and it kind of tells you something when your foster mom is there, right? And that, she, I, I presume she's the only person that was there for him uh, in court. And uh, it's it's sad, right? However, when the person I was speaking with about this said, like, oh, yeah, though you can tell he's mentally ill, because he does go into that briefly when he's uh, giving his uh, pleading speech to the judge. To me, I don't see mental illness in what he did, because there's not a person on earth who's going to, like, be really happy to be, uh, to hope for probation and be, uh, not given it and sentenced to go in, right? Yeah. It's like a little kid having a explosive tantrum. That's what I see. Because think about it. Can't you see like a two-year-old doing what he did? Yeah, but that can also be a sign of mental illness. I won't discount the idea that he could potentially be mentally ill. I'm honestly not in a position. All I've observed here, I've pulled up his criminal record. I've read some past trial transcripts on him. I've read, like, some different things that he's done. But, like, and me, in that video and, like, what I've been able to do in, I don't know, 48 hours or whatever, I can't discount that. Uh, in fact, what I can say is this. That's even more reason to lock him up. If this is what happens when he's unmedicated and out in society, standing in the courtroom where I can't think off the top of my head, other than maybe a funeral or church, I cannot think of another place where you are expected to have a particular projected sense of decorum other than a courtroom where are you supposed to do that? And if you can't hold it together, because he's clearly, and, and I, I tend to side with you here, and here's why. He was very clearly rambling on about his achievements, not a minute and a half before this happens. Right. And and if she had said, okay, sir, you, you know, that sounds great. I'm going to give you probation. This would not have occurred. Yeah. So I think he has probably, I know, I'm sure he has had trauma and he has suffered through some stuff because that's the way the world goes. But he's probably been a little coddled along the way. Well, he don't you? Pretty large individual. He is a big guy, which is what I think makes it so just. I mean, it just is mind-blowing to watch this huge guy. He he doesn't even hit the floor between the where he's standing and the bench. And, like, so he's nimble, right? He's yep. nimble, and he, he's fast. And then he, he's, he's imploring damage, too, which you can see, like, immediately. And I thought I, I, it's just so much all at once to take in. But – that decision where everybody that's on the other side of that and they're like, oh, crap, I'm going to go to jail. Every person would absolutely love to do what he did, right? And it's not even personal against the judge. It's just like, oh, my goodness, I didn't get my way, right? And it's, I don't know that not doing that, like going, oh, wait, I can't do that because I've got to show the decorum that's expected in a courtroom, right? Um, I think that's maturity. Look, like I said, decorum, maturity, ever how you want to look at this, when you're in court, you're told how to act. And like, if, if for people who haven't been in court recently, it's been so bad that 
Generally speaking, in most courtrooms that have local rules, a deputy will step forward, particularly on crowded days, and he will tell you what's about to happen. He will explain to you to cut your phone off or whatever other thing that the, the, are rules for the judge's courtroom because they set the rules for you know what's going to happen in front of them. And those rules are conveyed to you. This guy is not ignorant of that. He's clearly had a lot of time in court. This guy is like, you know, if he's an athlete, right, he's had his time trials, he's had his practices, he's had his rehearsals, he knows how to behave here to get the result that he wants. And the truth is, she was probably about to say something based on what I was seeing, like... He's going to get like a day in jail. Yeah, yeah. she was like, I'm going to give him 90 days. That's what she was going to say. She was going to say something to the effect of, I'm going to give him 90 days. And she might have even added on something like, I'm going to suspend 60 of it. And then he's going to have to do that probation as well. She didn't look like she was about to, you know, give him 50 years in prison. Maybe she was. She definitely is going to now. You're not at, well, she won't. Somebody else will. But you don't go in and and from what i could just barely make out from the prosecutor it didn't even seem like they were arguing against uh probation right no um, they they weren't making they weren't really making they didn't know what to do with this guy and so my point is that you're not arguing like to have a suspended sentence that you serve not in jail at, on probation out in the community when it, the possibility is that you're going to go for like 15 years or something, right? That that doesn't weigh itself out, right? It's It had to have been something, um, you know, I, I don't know how long the sentence might have been, but we're not talking about his entire life, right? For sure. We were not originally before he decided to. Now he is... At, he will not uh, get out. He he won't get, he won't get away with this on probation. Um, that's for sure. And I I really feel like he's probably going to get about twenty five years for this. Um, that's just my thought, and I hate it for him because I, I don't. I'm glad that he's going to get this time. Um, maybe, maybe he'll change his shit. Well, I hate it for him because I feel like the the kind of skills he's lacking there he may not some it was somebody else's job to instill that in him when he was a child and that didn't happen that's fine it's still not an excuse to behave this way okay look if you're in here absolutely not if if you're in here for strong arming someone and i think he had a battery and he had a coercion charge and he had um, he's a bully no question yeah he just needs to meet a bigger bully than him one good time whether that's intellectually psychologically or physically. And, and like, he needs to be put in his place in a way that like, he doesn't behave this way. And I don't know what you do with him until then. And I understand people's, Oh, there's mental illness in there. Well, that's fine. I don't, I don't feel like it is mental illness. Well, I don't, I don't care. It, it, like that doesn't excuse the behavior because he's clearly been in court enough that if he had listened to what's been done here, I mean, he has a foster mom at 30. I'm going to be real polite about that. That means somebody in your life cares. And that person has probably given you some advice. If she's standing there and they brought her to the courtroom to say that he can live there. I'm guessing along the way, you might've gotten some advice, like don't put your hands on other people. Okay. If he would have listened to that advice along the way, one, he wouldn't be here because a lot of these are assaults. He has a lot of assaults. But two, 
he wouldn't have come across the bench at a judge. I have no sympathy for somebody who comes across the bench at a judge. I don't get it whether I have it or not. That is one of the shortest list, I think. Maybe not for lack of trying, but typically they don't make it to the judge, right? And so that particular, like, uh, not only, you know, did he make it across the bench, um, he engaged and it went on. And I, and I do think it's, it wasn't, it's not a matter of them being incompetent. I think they were just stunned. I think it's, everybody was stunned. He makes it across the bench and the brawl is on for a good couple of minutes. Yeah, it, it like everybody jumps in. Uh, the the clerk tries to do something. This guy like is he tussles with the marshal to the point that I think the marshal maybe dislocated his elbow or his shoulder. It wasn't pretty, and it, some of it happens off screen, so it has that like level of suspense that like it feels like something out of a Hollywood movie. Well, and honestly, at first, I didn't realize the judge um, wasn't who he was like beating on, like, like wailing after- on, yeah. Um, and so that was her marshal or a bailiff or it was somebody in law enforcement. But I thought that that was her. And I see all these guys standing there, right? And I'm going, why aren't they doing anything? Then, of course, his attorney walks up to the bench. His attorney does not get physically involved. And if I had to put a caption on that part of the video, it would be like, I don't get paid enough as a public defender to do anything here. Right. Yeah. And he's like washed his hands of the whole situation. I don't blame him. There, there's not a whole lot that's going to happen to the defendant here that's, you know, worth getting your hands dirty for. Well, I would take that a step further and say there is literally nothing that guy can do. One, he can't physically confront this oaf and what he just did. And two, he can't help him legally now. No, like, like no. there's no, like there's nobody that can that can help that guy after something like that happens. I do. I will say this: one, I hope that everybody recovers okay, and two, I hope that that guy gets the whatever he needs—wake up call, assistance, help, whatever—that like doesn't make the next half of his life miserable. My gut says he won't make it. Because the other few people I've seen do things that were even, and this is like, if this is a ten, then what I've seen previously, particularly in person, is like a three or a four. Um, I I agree with that. I have never seen anything like this towards a judge. We we talked last year about uh, Taylor Shabiznis on her own attorney, right? Yeah. This is just one of those things that, like, there's never ever going to be an excuse for why you did this, right? No. Uh, I did see at the very end, uh, the video cuts around and, and the judge does stand up and she has made comments and she she's, you know, okay. Like yeah. she's not, uh, I don't know what kind of scrapes and bumps she's got, but he did not succeed in killing her. But I honestly, for a split second, thought that, oh, wow, this is going to be like the first thing I see. And this guy's going to beat this judge to death. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, um. It was disturbing, so if you watch it, keep that in mind. But I, I do think people should see stuff like this so that you realize there are people like this in the world. That right. guy changed his whole life in what, what, by my count, is less than two seconds. Right, but I feel like you've already got – you're on a path when you're able to do that to begin with, right? Yeah. It, it didn't come out of nowhere. 
Wow. Just wow. It, it's it's <laughs> so crazy. I have uh, so I have one more piece of true crime news. And so I'm going to preface this by saying when we come back in the next episode, we're going to be chasing a serial killer. A couple, actually, the way that the story goes. Do you have anything else on this judge and uh, defendant thing? No. I'm going to save that. I'm going to come back with an outro in a second. But, uh, okay, so I have one other wild thing that happened over the holidays. And I've been – so I've been following this guy for a second. He is on my my highway initiative list. He pops up on there because he gets arrested in 2022. And he does some nonsense over the holidays that uh, was shocking to me. Uh, had you ever heard – or? Well, let me rephrase that. Do you remember us like briefly talking about this uh, investigative genealogy case that happened where this guy got arrested? I'm not really sure. It seems very familiar, but it was kind of news to me, honestly. There were two cases that you and I covered, and we were talking about the Highway Killer Initiative. For people who don't know what that is. There have been a couple of these along the way. But recently, we we had talked a little bit about uh, Sean Goble. He's a much older one. Uh, we had talked about Bruce Mendenhall. Um, and there was a uh, this guy, Collie McCraney, that we talked about. He got arrested for killing two teenage girls down in, um, I think he got arrested in Alabama, maybe. Uh, but he's been in the last couple of years. We've talked about all of these guys just kind of along the way. And then when we talk about them, you know, Keith Jesperson's in that pile. There's not much that we can do where we can track it because a lot of these cases sort of fall off the radar. Clark Baldwin is one of them. He like I haven't heard anything about him in a couple of years, and like I've wondered. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, I, I feel know. like I feel like um, just you know the the way you're summing this up, I feel like you're illustrating it perfectly because you know the highway killing. Killer Initiative, um, however that's referred to, uh, you know, it's law enforcement working together across the country to basically try and bring some closure to the vast amount of mostly women, but, you know, it doesn't have to be a woman, uh, bodies found on the sides of the roads off the highways, right? Yeah. That have come to a traumatic end. Because it, if you look at all those numbers, it's really devastating. There, there's been a lot of people kind of thrown off the highway after they've been killed. And right. as technology comes around and, you know, we're in 2024, you know, and, and this has been going on for a while, the, the initiative, right? Um, right? The thought behind it is like, let's get these cases solved. But I feel like it kind of morphed to where there's an impression that it's one killer. And it, it certainly isn't, right? I think it's driven a lot of investigators crazy over the years that way too. Because I've, I remember, and I'm not going to name them right here, right now, but there's been people that have presented, like I'll, I'll go to different conferences and different things. And, and they've, they've been presenting different theories like this one guy and you may remember him now, but I don't remember his name right this second. I have the materials still here on my bookshelf somewhere, but um, there's this one guy that's like, it's all the blonde women. And like, he like said that there was a killer and they were hunting these blonde women. And he like had this whole list. Cause I remember it cause it had Holly Bebo's picture on this thing that he did. And I was just like, this is crazy. But so many people have tried to like, 
give input on this highway thing. It's a lot. And it's so much that I have pretty consistently kind of thrown my hands up in the air because I can't follow what, usually I cannot follow what's being put down, um, which, you know, it may be me, but it also may be that it doesn't follow logic. One of the most, I would say, reactive things that somebody who has had an encounter that resulted in uh, the other person's death, one of the most reactive things that would happen is for the body to be dumped. Okay. Yeah. To me, you know, you can, you can take into account a whole lot of stuff here, but some of the thought processes, you know, you've got truckers that truck all the way across the country that they, and these are the long haul truckers with the big cabs. And, you know, they basically have like a bed and stuff in uh, their cab and some of them entertain. And there's a whole sort of known society thing out there where, you know, girls ride with guys and whatever. And I have always thought that in those types of situations, no matter what's happening, uh, there's a lot of opportunities for things to go wrong. Uh, I would say some of these cases are probably related, but I don't know about you. I get, I always had the impression that they, you know, it was conjuring up like this sort of like truck driving boogeyman or whatever you would think of where it's this one guy whose prerogative is to do nothing but kill women and throw their bodies off on the highway. I think that's the headline skimming version of it. I think that's like, that's what ends up happening, but there's so many of them that have been arrested. Like there's literally dozens of these serial killers that were truck drivers. Right. And so that's what I was sort of getting at is when I've looked at this, uh, this set of cases, particularly like the highway killer initiative, the ones that would fall in that group, I try to focus on the victims because you get really lost if you don't focus on them individually. Right. Yeah. There's a lot of, uh, bodies that have been discarded on the highways in the United States. Yeah, and I, I would say that's even a good place to like illustrate like where to start this story. And, and this has a this has a very recent tie. Uh, this is not tied to the overarching series that we're doing necessarily. And, and I have a lot of sources on this. Most of them are like uh, thirteen on your side, M Live News, Fox Fifty Nine. Uh, there's a lot of stuff on Reddit and newspapers. I'll try to remember to say each source. I'm pulling this together from uh, a couple of years worth of stuff that's gone on. Um, the first thing is this on October 3rd of 1996, Kent County Sheriff deputies, they responded to an incident on 76th street Southeast between Patterson Avenue and Kraft Avenue in Caledonia township. That's up in Michigan. Someone had called in that a woman had been found deceased there, and they find this woman. They determine pretty quickly that she's been sexually assaulted and she's been strangled to death. And that woman later gets identified as a 29-year-old who had been missing named Sharon Hammock. That's 1996. This woman is essentially ripped out of her life and leaves a lot of family behind. She's found lying in tall grass in a field. She's wrapped up in a thin cloth. And authorities back then, they said that her panties had been pulled down around her ankles and that her body was found just 10 feet off the road. 
autopsy tells them that she's also four weeks pregnant. Nothing happens with that case for 26 years. And then 26 years later, in August of 2022, there's an arrest made. This guy has an extensive criminal record going back to that time, including like Kent County charges. He had a lot of criminal sexual assault crimes. See, uh, depending on where you're at, that's either CSA or CSC crimes. He spent 11 years in the Michigan Department of uh, Corrections for a first degree rape. So he went into prison in August of 1981, and he got out in June of 1992, which would have been about four years before Sharon Hammock had been found. So whoever had killed Sharon Hammock, they left DNA in her in several places. They had also left DNA on, on a rope, and that rope had been used to hogtie her before strangling her. And then for some reason, they stabbed her in the head with a knife. It took a long time for them to figure all of this out. But back in 2006, there was a sex worker who was raped and stabbed to death in Maryland. And the killer there had left DNA on the victim. So familial DNA gets done on Sharon Hammock's case and this case in Maryland. And they figured out that it was the same person. The DNA exam... Like if you read like what they did, the initial exam and when they put all of this together, it says that the person who committed both of these crimes had the same parents. Kent County Sheriff's Detectives, they track that DNA forward. They find a couple and that couple has four sons. They start digging into those four male relatives and they discover that only one of them has any ties to Michigan. This guy had been living and working pretty close to the murder scene. He had been in the state of Michigan, and they know he had ties to the state of Michigan because he had uh, originally spent a lot of time in prison there. This other case, they're kind of stuck on, the Maryland case, because that victim actually came out of California and ends up in Maryland. But they're able to put this guy from Michigan within 20 miles of the location this other woman came out of. So authorities figured out that Sharon had a history of doing some sex work. And at the time of her death, there were nearly a dozen unsolved murders of women going back who were confirmed to be involved in sex work. And authorities began to wonder if they might all be linked to one suspect. And they didn't initially like have this guy on their radar, definitely not as a, they knew he was a predator law enforcement did, but they did not know that he was a serial killer. At the time I started reading about this, they weren't saying like this guy has killed all of these people, but they did say he has killed these two people. That's not about right to like start this off. Right. And uh, the, the reason that they knew that was through CODIS, right? Right. Okay, so they matched the victim DNA from the perpetrator that was left on the victims matched each other in CODIS. Right. And from that, they did a genetic genealogy profile, which you explained. This is where it gets weird. They arrest this guy. His name is Gary Dean Artman. He's 64 years old in, in 2022. They arrest him in Mississippi, but he's from Florida. And then they extradite him back to Michigan. And they convict him of killing 
Sharon Hammock. And this guy's really combative in court. I don't know if you've seen him talking, but when he's sitting down in court, he is just mean. He tells the investigators they're idiots. He like talks a bunch of trash about them. Uh, police realize pretty quickly that like he might be involved in some other murders. And the prosecutor makes a mistake. During the sentencing for Sharon Hammock's murder, basically gets life in prison in September 2023. And the prosecutor makes a mistake. The prosecutor mentions 11 murders. During like the sentencing, he says that they think he's responsible for up to 11 unsolved homicides. That's not even, this is, none of this is the part that like is making me like tell this story right now. What's making me get into this story is this guy over Christmas is known to be dying. You think that's a fair way to describe it? He's known to be dying. He's actually like in a coma, yeah. Yeah. So on his deathbed, he admits to 11 murders. He reaches out to detectives in Michigan days before he's going to die. He admits to 11 murders. Uh, the first 10 of them, he admits to them he had been in a coma on a respirator. They were expecting him to have already been dead. They knew that this Maryland case was, which is, a, it's a May 2006 case. Um, it's a young victim named Dusty Shuck. Had you ever heard of her? No. I mean, okay. except in conjunction with this case, uh, yeah. with when he was being tried, yeah. Yeah, she was 24 years old, and she was found beaten and stabbed to death near a truck stop off of I-70 in Maryland on May 4th of 2006. But she comes from California. So her getting out here is, is kind of wild. So Dusty and Sharon are two victims that like we kind of knew those were going to be his because the DNA had managed. But this guy then confesses to a stack of murders that he had been denying. It is the weirdest thing for me to see someone doing about face like this because he could have just as easily passed away and not given this information to authorities. But here's what they have. Um, and somebody put this together on Reddit, so I'm just going to read it for now. But I, I'm going to point out a couple of things. This is from Groggy21. They threw this up really fast, actually, on Reddit Serial Killers. It, it like just was there. And their post on their on the serial killers subreddit says that a recent deathbed confession has likely just solved one of the most prolific serial murder investigations in Michigan's history. That of the grand rapid serial killer from 1993 to 1997, a serial killer or killers targeted women in and around the city of grand rapids, Michigan. I had never heard it called grand rapid serial killer, like in terms of there being an overarching name, but I have seen allusions to this in newspapers over the years. Now, uh, this serial killer was leaving bodies in rural areas, and most of the victims were sex workers. The killer was pretty good at hiding bodies, but by the time, because by the time they were found, they were only bones, and there was not a lot of physical evidence that had been found. There are 17 women on this list. The first woman is Linda McHugh. She was last seen December 13th, 1993. Her body's never been found. She is attributed to this serial killer. Second one is Lisa Otberg. Uh, she was last seen January 1st, 1994. Her body was found under some brush, uh, and she, was, she had no clothes on, and she had been strangled. 
Uh, third one is Robin Scott. She was last seen on January 18, 1994. Her body has never been found. The fourth one is Shelley Kempert Christian. She goes missing at an unknown time, but her remains end up being found by hunters in November of 1994. Uh, Pam Varilla is the fifth body. She is found on the banks of the Grand River, June of 1995. Uh, she goes missing June 1st. She's found on June 2nd. She died of blunt force trauma to the head. I'm not so sure she's involved, but we're going to leave her on the list for the moment. Uh, Fonda Lockridge was last seen on June 15th, 1995, and her body has never been found. She would have been a potential sixth victim. Uh, Kathleen Dennis, which is a big deal, she was last seen on July 7th, 1995, and she and the third victim, Robin Scott, were last seen in the same area. The eighth person on this list is Gail Cook. She was last seen on October 4th, 1995, and her body gets found a week later in a, a wooded area. She'd been strangled to death. The ninth victim is a woman named Dawn Shaver, who was last seen November 17th, 1995. Her body gets found in a creek that's underneath a railroad bridge later the same day, and she had been beaten and strangled. The 10th victim is a woman named Dawn Phillips. She went missing on January 19th of 1996. Um, her remains get found later in the year, in October of 1996. And investigators say that she died of homicidal violence, but they never release a cause of death that I can find. The 11th victim is Michelle Becker, last seen April 27th of 1996. Her body is found August 9th in a wooded area. Uh, no cause of death has been released there. Then we've got the 12th victim is Victoria Moore. She disappears on August 1st, 1996, and her remains get found by a hunter October 27th. Uh, 13th victim is Cheryl Mason. She's last seen on August 6th, 1996, and her remains get found in bushes behind a business on October 13th. Um, I'm looking at these names. I'm not 100% sure they're right on all these names, but uh, we're going to come back to that. Um, Sherry Stewart Brown is the 14th suspected victim of the Grand Rapids serial killer. She's last seen on August 9th, 1996, but her skeletal remains are found in an overgrown area uh, near a road on July 2nd, 1998. Um, the 15th victim is Sonia Campos. She goes missing September 4th, 96, and her remains are found September 21st, 96, about two miles away from where Sherry Stewart Brown's remains were later found. Uh, then we have, obviously, uh, in the course of the timeline, we have Sharon Hammock. She is found. And the last one is Stephanie Judson. She's the 17th progressive uh, person here. Uh, her remains get found at a roadside park on July 31st, 1997. So they're starting to link all of this together. Now, I will say this. The guy falls back into a coma. Gary Altman. He falls back into a coma. Comes out of it. And he confesses to Dusty Shuck's murder in Maryland. That's the one his DNA was on. Uh, authorities have not released this complete list. This is somebody putting this out there on uh, Reddit right now. And I saw a similar list on Web Sleuths. Um, so this is going to be popping up over the next couple of days. But it's going to be one to watch, I think. It's another killer that has died. Uh, the way this person wraps up their post is, here's what she says. Or they say. I don't know if it's a guy or a girl. For a long time, there was little progress on the cases, and the investigators and the public alike have little hope of solving these murders. That all changed in 2022 when forensic genealogy linked DNA found on the body of Shannon Hammock. She says S-H-A-N-N-A-N, -A -A Hammock, uh, for Sharon Hammock here. I don't know 
what's going on. Keep that all as a grain of salt. They found DNA on her body to link a 66-year-old long-haul trucker named Gary Artman. So when Gary Artman died, he was 66 years old. He was 64 when he was arrested. And he was definitely connected to Dusty. She was found beaten and stabbed to death at a rest stop near Frederick, Maryland on May 4th, 2006. She does not fit this timeline, but she is linked by DNA. And that makes me wonder so many things. Um, I think that's probably my biggest question. Uh, he was expected to die in December, but unexpectedly came out of his coma and had an apparent change of heart. He had been denying like his involvement in all of this. He had even denied uh, the crime that he was convicted for, right? Right. Uh, DNA found on the body of Pam Varel revealed that Artman was not her killer. So this is going to be kind of a lumping and splitting thing that happens for a while where they try and use his DNA to rule him out. Some of these you can't because there is no DNA. Well, so here's what I had to say about all of this, because this is all new. This is kind of news-ish um, as far as, like, it's unfolding as we're recording. Didn't it just, like, wasn't it, like, yesterday where they announced it? It's been, it's, yeah, we did, we're we're doing this because I was like, oh, that's, I like that one. Let's put that one out. And we're doing this as a as a lead-in to the beginning of uh, what will be season five of True Crime Excess. And I just wanted to sort of get your... Well, great, because I have something that I feel like this will be interesting to follow. So we've got a guy who we have DNA evidence that links him to two uh, crimes, two rapes and murders of women at that span across like over a decade, right? Yeah. Uh, through CODIS. So the events link and then they link him. And uh, the, all this stuff is is new-ish. Now, he was just convicted um, in September of 23, right? Correct. And got, he got life in prison for uh, Sharon Hammond's murder. Right. What happened was, um, after being, you know, terminally, uh, he had a terminal prognosis and he was in a coma. And he, I don't know if they brought him out or if he just came out of it. Um, he makes it what is a classic deathbed confession, Right. Yeah. And so, Maya, you, and you can uh, fill in anything I've misunderstood here, because, like I said, it happened like yesterday. Or it, he died seven days ago, right? Correct. And nothing about it was um, released until after he died. But I'm interested to see if there was evidence linking him. If he was fed any information, if any presumptions were made otherwise. So it's one of those cases where you've got a guy having a deathbed confession where uh, we can see like how valid it really is as far as him being the actual perpetrator of the crime. Now, I'm saying all that just to be a little bit skeptical. I'm not saying that the investigators have done anything wrong. But it's, this is one of the very first, I want, I'm trying to think, I know that there's been um, attorneys that have given out, you know, list of, yeah. but this is a unique situation here where you've got a guy who was convicted very recently of a crime that was several decades old, right? Yeah. Dying. And right before he dies, he gives an unexpected confession. And it account and like you said, they haven't released everything about it or whatever. And so I believe that 
it's speculation, right, on who's on the list. Is that right or no? Well, so the way this works is that person on Reddit pulled from woodtv.com, looks like to me, and Fox 59, where Fox 59 sort of went back. And uh, although I'm giving them credit on Reddit, that reads word for word like it was pulled from a couple of different news articles where reporters were trying to put – there's even a map up. Um, uh, they were trying to put these old cases kind of all out there. Uh, missing there women. is nothing wrong with doing that because they need the exposure. The only thing that concerns me is that the, it, like once that connection's made, it can it can – if it doesn't solve everything and there is this like one massive serial killer, to me, it almost hinders it. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think I don't think this is going to be a case where we're going to know for a minute. That's why I was putting it out there now, because like we're going to be dealing with some slightly older cases of serial killers shortly. I thought this was a good lead in. Plus, this happens near I-70. But what I was going to point out here. I think the prosecutor made a mistake. Blair Lockman said something in the closing arguments about there being potentially 11 other murders. I, so I don't want to drag this particular case on forever because I think it's going to come up again as we get news on it. I think this is going to be my true crime news that sticks in my head for a while. How do you, how do you go to prison, you get out in 92, and then suddenly you go on a spree? We'll say, based on... Based on what all is being offered right here, 95, 96, and then you do nothing until 2006? Oh, I, I don't think that. Um, particularly when you're this violent a person? Yeah, well, not to mention um, in a little bit, I, I don't have a source on it, but basically once he went to prison and got out, like he learned not to leave a witness behind, right? <laughs> yes, and that's what one of the articles said. At the end, it's like he wouldn't leave witnesses again. Right, which is why he escalated to be, um, you know, a murderer rather than just a rapist. Now, the his case, uh, it's actually, I, I feel like it's on the very fringe, but I'm not entirely sure. He, he, this guy is the reason why people who commit first-degree rape can now get life in prison, right? Uh, the cases like this where, I mean— uh, there's no question that he should have been in jail and never gotten out the first time, right? But that's not how it worked, you know, in the 80s and 90s, in early 90s. Uh, but this is a, a prime example of why that changed is because this is the trend that they were seeing. I have looked at a bunch of roadside and, like, body dump cases over the years. And when I say a bunch, I'm talking thousands, um, because body dumps are bizarre when they happen. And that typically indicates someone is either trying to distance themselves from a crime or they're not from that area and they don't know what to do with the body. Now, there are other reasons, so don't get me wrong on that. But when I started hunting through uh, Larry Hall, Israel Keys, when I was doing other serial killers, I would frequently go, well, this one could be uh, when you get into these like they've been dumped just off the road, but it's also close to hunting land, but it's also close to this trailhead. Um, so this case fascinates me for that reason to begin with, but also from the perspective that like this is going to be an interesting investigation to unfold. 
I hope there's more DNA evidence, but if he only gave them 11 names based on that prosecutor saying there's 11 homicides we're looking into, that's going to be an interesting and fascinating thing to me. But what this, what this does that like I really find um, interesting, and I hope he gave them names and everything on the 11 confessions, what makes it interesting to me if they release all of this is it reduces other clusters. It means that like, if you can take certain people out of certain situations, sometimes you can find their killer because the thing that didn't fit for this suspect is gone. Right. And eventually that will deconstruct all of the overarching highway serial killers are the way they're clumped together. Right. One of the things that caught my attention, I don't know how much it's going to matter, but I did want to say something because it, I felt like it was relevant. And the source on this is Fox 17, and I'm not sure who wrote it, but it's from the trial. And so when the trial began, the prosecutors uh, said that uh, during the trial that Artman and Hammock had actually met up prior to uh, meeting when she was killed. Uh, she was a known sex worker at the time and that they had met in person at least one time for a specific sexual act. Um, and Hammock left that meeting disturbed afterwards. She told uh, a friend of, of Hammock's on the stand testified that she had told uh, the friend that the guy was a creep and that he was rough and he forced her to do things she didn't want to do. Okay. And so uh, there's some sort of narrative that happens in the prosecution's case. And I don't think this trial was like televised, was it? You don't think the entire thing is, I think you can find most of it online. Okay. But, but well, I, don't, I don't think it was like live anywhere. And so I, I, I'm prefacing, I only ask because I'm prefacing in that I didn't watch the trial. So this testimony is not me absorbing it. This is me absorbing what somebody else absorbed. So the narrative the prosecution is building, it indicates that Artman persuade, even though he, even though Hammock had had that encounter where um, she felt disturbed and uh, she told her friend, this guy's a creep, he convinced her to come meet him again, saying that because he said he had a gift for her. And um, when, so she, so Hammock actually went to the hotel room to meet Artman and took her friend with her. Right. And they uh, that threw him off of his game, I guess, and so they they left. Now I'd like to hear this entire testimony. It it's weird how they kind of skim over it here, but basically that testimony was leading to the fact that the prosecution's narrative was that Artman tracked Hammock down kidnapped her, sexually assaulted her, and then killed her. And so that is a that is a narrative um, that it doesn't make me immediately think of like serial killers uh, necessarily. However, you know, I don't know how evolved the notion of this sort of not seeing your victim as a person is, right? Because this, this guy was attracted to this woman, right? Yeah. Even, even if she was a sex, even though they're saying she's a sex worker, um, he had some sort of 
infatuation with her, like not just a sex worker. And so to me, that starts getting, I mean, and I'm not saying that they were in any sort of relationship, but the mindset here, it's more of a personal one. Well, even with, okay, so take Dusty Shuck for a second. There's going to be some level of something happening because he takes her all the way across the country. If he didn't know her before, he knew her after because that's quite the ride, huh? Yeah, that's a long ride. And, like, you know, I I don't have a lot more on him today. I think you're right that, like, there could be something really weird about that. Well, to me – and and so that was in nine in the nineties, right? And to me, I I know that it's not a domestic situation. Most definitely not. She clearly was not in a relationship with him. She was working to get money, right? He took it a step further, and I, you know, there's not information about other activity he was doing, like this, right? And and yeah. but to me, if there, I don't feel like. That doesn't sound to me like the prosecution was setting this up to be like this big serial killer case. Oh, no, they didn't believe that it was at the time. I don't think that's where they were headed. Like, I don't think, well, regardless of where they're headed, I don't think it's where they were they were aiming to win that case. That's That can sometimes look different than like the real thing that like happened. I also wondered, which again could be solved possibly if I could see the case Uh, the trial footage, where was this witness, you know, when it happened, right? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I I have no idea. Yeah, I I, I can't. I just, I'm just having trouble following it. But again, if I find it, I'll let you know. Well, I I just thought this was a good way to kick off the new year. So, like, this one can come back up and will, I I assume. um, This is something I think we should absolutely follow because what we've got right now is one of those uh, things that really we've only ever seen in history, right? Where, you know, they give a list of victims and uh, you're, your position is uh, he might have felt like he had to give uh, the number to satisfy what the prosecutor had said in the closing, maybe. Something like that. Um, I, I feel there like, could potentially be more, right? Well, he's got a – so this guy's a Marine, and I found him, like, on newspapers.com where he, like, is enlisting. It's in the 70s. And then I can track him through prison. And then he has this big open gap of time where he's clearly out roving. He learned to kill the witnesses. So right, because he got caught, right? And he, they he's he I believe I also read like not only did he get out, but like he had he was he served the maximum amount that was allowed for his crime. Like they yeah, they, they, they literally him. they literally let his his um, sentence run out. They like let it expire. Yeah. Right, because they didn't because so somebody recognized that. Now I do wonder, okay, the way it's set up currently in the media, which um, I don't know, this is also a good thing that you can see. This was a fairly, because of the way it was set up, this is basically just a guy getting convicted of a cold case, right? Um, It wasn't like it was, there's not like Dateline on it or anything, right? Not yet, no. Uh, That's my point. So, it, everything came out, and then, like, it's just the same regurgitated stuff, but it, it kind of, like, spreads, right? It's like volcano lava as it yeah. <laughs> kind of covers everything. Okay. And so 
because we're starting at this sort of point in time where basically in September of 2023, he was finally convicted of it. 1996, uh, I believe was that when uh, hammock was killed? Um, he's convicted of that and, you know, he goes to jail for the rest of his life. He's sitting in, uh, in, you know, the rest of his life in prison and, uh, they have absolutely no, uh, hope that he's going to confess to anything. He's in a coma, wakes up, meets with investigators, uh, makes his confession. Um, do you think that he had like a come to, you know, the end of my life, uh, crisis of conscience that I, you, I don't know if you want to hear my opinion on that. I think, you, I think you wanted credit. Well, I mean, that's possible. I, I feel like he could have really, Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Like, cause that gets complicated because then that means say, that the 11 is probably real, but well, I don't I believe say, that number. Like Henry V. Lucas wanted credit, right? Correct. <laughs> and Correct. I mean, he went like ballistically crazy with his 300 murders, right? Yeah. Um, and so 11 to me is a little bit weird um, for, for that situation, right? Um, this guy... Uh, just based on what we know happened, he was not a nice guy. And I, I don't understand the mindset. I never want to understand the mindset of, you know, oh, I killed the most or, you know, whatever that whole situation is. But, like, I wondered if this guy had experienced something because never in a million years does anything about him indicate up until that very point in time that he did it, that like he's going to give any sort of sense of closure. So you could be a hundred percent right. This could just be he could have been being honest. Um, which, you know, if his victim count is eleven, it is what it is, right? Um, and he just wanted credit for what he had done, right? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I find it fascinating. Um, I'll, you know, hopefully they'll put out more information because they did go ahead and release that, you know, he had made these deathbed confessions. I'm always skeptical of that, but um, I'm... I believe deathbed confessions more than I believe uh, playtime confessions. So Henry Lucas is a playtime confession. Like he's... All he is. Yeah. So it's playtime confession. It's just he's getting favors. He's getting out into the world. He's getting field trips. It's playtime confession. This, I feel like, could be more real. Well, but I don't he, know yet. And he had, uh, it, it's just a weird, like, you know, anytime somebody confesses to 300 murders, they, they, they didn't do that. Okay. I can assure you of that. Um, and it's, it's ridiculous. Um, this guy had nothing to lose. And the only thing that changed between the time where he was in custody and cause, cause there's no way he died from the cancer he had, um, like, he had to have already had that happening, I think. Um, he knew he was dying, yes. So, but there was nothing that changed between the times of leading up to his trial that he wouldn't talk to investigators and uh, his ultimate deathbed confessions, except the fact that he was in a coma, and I guess he realized he wasn't going to make it much longer. Yeah, maybe. He, I, th- that makes it harder for me to believe he might be playing games. Um, I don't think that I, the shape that he was, I imagine that he was in 
I definitely don't think it was a game. I, I, there would be no reason for that, right? I, I think he may have confessed to what he could remember in the moment. That's possible. He sure. came out and confessed to this other case that he knew his DNA was on or whatever had happened there. I It's just, okay, here's what's hard. And, and this, this will be my final thoughts for today. I have difficulty looking at this and going, because I see this list, and I understand people are putting it out there, and I put it out there too. I'm just throwing it out there because those cases deserve closure. I have a difficulty to think that, like, at the end of the day, this is going to be a guy who killed 10 people in, in Michigan, but then suddenly has this Maryland person, but was a long-haul trucker and has no other victims or only has victims in these two places. Like, those are confusing thoughts for me to wrap my head around. Well, right. And so, you know, as far as like the Grand Rapids uh, serial killer and he, so he's already been attributed as being that guy. It's happening now. Like this right, is right so now. new. Okay. Yeah, this is so new. And we will so be one of the first podcasts out about this. How is it possible? And this is just me thinking about this. Um, Cause we do know for certain that he did confess to the crime that he had been convicted of already. And um, Dusty, right? Right. Because there was a DNA link there. And she has nothing to do with Michigan or Grand right. Rapids or right. like any of that. And so I'm immediately confused because I, I'm like, well, how are they saying he's the Grand Rapids serial killer? Um, it doesn't even follow his like very initial MO, right? Well, well the news had this morning, the news had um, a quote. Where, well, it's not even a quote. It's a recorded uh, conversation. It's an it's an audio piece, and it's them talking to Catherine Dennis's family. So they're reaching out and making notifications as we're talking. That's the police. That's law enforcement. It was the detective calling. Uh, so they. So that. Um, yeah, so we're so gonna we're about to see a little more about this, maybe. Well. Um, I do think that uh, I hate to even revel in this because it involves so many, uh, you know, young women's deaths, basically. But I am a little bit fascinated by how this uh, will unravel and how we'll get to sort of explain different elements of how um, narratives are built, right? And that's what I was saying about it not having been on Dateline or anything like that yet. Um the narrative of the case is built and how like it easily becomes wrong, uh, misinterpreted, um, whatever you want to say about it. But so this is a really interesting event. I think that's, that's fair enough to say without, because I'm not trying to demean the victims at all, but I feel like that this is an interesting kind of thing that's going to, uh, bloom coming, you know, over 2024. Yeah. And so, if something crazy happens this weekend, we may come back with one more episode on this now. Like if they release a list and there's a lot to look at that's not just speculation by reporters and um, other web sleuths, then we'll take a look at it. Um, if not, next week we'll be starting uh, a series on a serial killer and we'll make room for this as we uh, move into season five. Did you have anything else you want to throw out there today? Nope.
A convicted murderer who was on his deathbed in a Michigan prison came out of a coma and confessed to killing 11 women. He then died. Now, police in Kent County, Michigan, are trying to give some closure to families whose loved ones were murdered. Susan Samples reports Gary Artman, who died of lung cancer, was defiant until the very end when he surprisingly confessed to the crimes. This is Tommy. Hey, Tommy. Andy Hines, Detective Sergeant with the Kent County Sheriff's Office. On the other end of the line, a son who's been waiting 28 years for this call to finally know the face of the monster who took his mom away. Unfortunately, he did uh, disclose us um, some details where we believe he's responsible for your mom's murder. Tommy Dennis was just seven years old when his mom, Kathleen Dennis, known for her laughter and bubbly spirit, traveled with her sister from their hometown in Nebraska to work Division Avenue in Grand Rapids Red Light District. That's where police are now confident that she crossed paths with serial killer Gary Artman. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, we're still working, uh, Tommy, on several other cases um, in the Grand Rapids area um, around the same time. Um, we believe um, he could be linked to uh, many more. Over three years in the mid-90s, 17 moms, sisters, wives, most working in the sex industry, were found murdered in and around Grand Rapids. Four of them, including Kathleen Dennis, vanished, never to be seen again. For nearly three decades, there were no answers until forensic genetic genealogists, using suspect DNA from the 1996 murder of Sharon Hammock, identified Gary Artman as Hammock's killer. But all these other murders... They're idiots. Your detectives right there, excuse my language, are idiots. Artman, defiant at his sentencing, stuck to his claim of innocence. But three months later, as he neared death, a stunning confession. Sources confirmed to Target 8 that the long-haul trucker said he murdered 11 women, 10 in Grand Rapids, including Sharon Hammock, and one in the state of Maryland. 24-year-old Dusty Shuck was found beaten and stabbed off I-70 near a truck stop. She was an amazing soul. She was good inside and out. Dusty Shuck's mom, Lori Kreitzer, told Target Aid Artman was in a coma on a respirator, expected to die. And he did not die. He came out of the coma after the respirator went out and fully confessed to Dusty's murder. So at least he did that and then died the 28th at the hospital and Dusty's birthday was the 29th. So she would have been 42. Kathleen Dennis would have been 56. Detectives said, based on details Artman provided, it's unlikely Dennis's remains could ever be recovered. Dennis, at least it, you know, provides some kind of closure. I mean, ideally, like, I would like her return to me, but you know, this is just kind of where things are at. That was Susan Samples reporting. Detectives are still working through the details they learned from Artman, comparing them with 17 missing persons files from the Grand Rapids area during the time he was active. Thank you so much for joining us today. We'll see you next time.
Did I tell you about um, taking my kid to court and the pregnant woman getting held in contempt? No. No. <laughs> so so we go in. Uh, this is a long time ago. This is My kid was maybe 13. And um, we were in one of those really small courtrooms where they kind of rotate people in and out of. And right. I, think, I think you guys have bigger courtrooms. Ours are really tiny. Anyways, so the kid was there. And it was half criminal, half family court that day. So, like, they were calling two dockets at the same time. Um, and they had two different prosecutors in the room because the prosecutor with the civil stuff was really just, like, an advocate, like, on behalf. Like, they did a bunch of, um, like, protective orders and things like that that day. And so some of the cases were – they set it up that way because some of the cases were there for both, meaning – they were there for a civil protective order, but that's because there was a criminal charge linked to it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so there's this, this woman and she's clearly 15 months pregnant. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, right. she's so pregnant that like, and, um, we, we go through everything and my kids like kind of in the back because the bailiff kept wanting us to like rotate stuff out. And I'm sitting right behind the, the box on the left side. And I don't know what this woman said because I missed the first part of it, but the judge just stopped everything. And, um, she had actually, somebody said she'd never uh, hit her gavel before, but she's like almost broke it that day. And she says, look, I'm going to have to hold you in contempt because you're being ridiculous. And the pregnant woman was like, then you hold me wherever you need to hold me. And so she's like in the second row and the judge was like, get up, get up. So she gets up and she like walks down the aisle. She's like, do you have any idea where you are? And this woman is maybe 23, 24 years old. And she's like, who are you sitting beside? And she calls out who she's sitting beside. She's like, is that, is that the defendant in this protective order and these felony criminal matters for this afternoon? And the woman it's like, uh, uh, and she said, are you seriously considering lying to me right now? The woman just has a meltdown. She picks up a chair and shoves it out of the way. And like, uh, it was the courtroom, like that has the swinging door to step out from the galley. So it's like the door starts swinging back and forth and the bailiff comes over and she like runs towards the bench. But this particular courtroom, the bench is actually like, like the top of it's probably seven feet off the ground because the judge steps up a little thing and sits in the middle and the woman hits it. The little pregnant woman hits it and just falls back. And my kid is like breaking on a phone to record it and stuff. The bailiff puts the woman in handcuffs and the woman's like, he, he says she's slippery or something like that. (laughs) And he like puts her back over the desk and and the judge asks, he's like, how pregnant are you right now? And the woman's like, whatever number of months she is, because she's clearly about to like have a baby like right in the courtroom. I'm sort of exaggerating, but not really. And she was like, do you have any idea like, like what you're doing? Like what's going on? And her mom stands up and tries to defend her. And she's like, I've got to hold you in contempt. And the woman goes off again. And the, she, at this point, she's in handcuffs. And she's like, I'm going to hold you in contempt. And she's like, right now, it's, it, you're going to stay in contempt till this afternoon session. And, um, and and you can just cool off in the holding cell. So she like starts to take her back. And she walks. The deputy 
scoops her up and a female deputy comes out from like the hallway behind the chambers and they start to walk her out. And I don't know what happens, but um, it's a pretty long hallway and it's a couple of uh, elevators there. But you can hear the woman shouting as she walks out of the courtroom. And then all of a sudden you hear something go boom. <laughs> the judge says, bring her back in here. So the deputies bring her back in here and they like put her, um, they put her back in the, the box and like she asked her what's going on and what did she just do? She gives her 48 hours for contempt. And the woman says, I don't care. You can give me a week. And the judge says, fine, we're going to hold you for a week. And the judge says, we're going to need medical to come over and take a look at this one. So one of the deputies leaves. And the woman kicks the big table thinking that it's bolted to the floor. And the big table, like, rolls forward. Uh, it doesn't fall, but it, like, rolls forward like it's going to. And then it just wobbles for a second. And the judge is like, I'm telling you right now. And the woman says, you give me whatever time you want to do. And she said, all right. She said, that's two weeks. And the bailiff starts to walk her out. And she kicks the door, like, so that it swings back and it hits the bailiff in the arm. And the judge is like, get her back in here. Brings her back in again and gives her 30 days. I don't know if it ever resolved itself differently, but I was like, oh, great. This is the day I bring my kid to court. I think that was a great experience. Um, that's exactly uh, what you don't want to do. Um, and you have no idea. Of course, that's none of our business. But I'm just curious, like, how uh, the judge hadn't done anything to this woman, right? Uh, she was clearly upset about something. And the defiant. The judge literally was probably going to have no contact with this woman until she did that. And, well, and you don't know what got the judge's attention, right? No, it was something to do with. Uh, when they call the civil docket, they just call by last name and I don't know, the bailiffs will tell them different things, but usually it's like, if you are the, like the protected on the protective order, please say witness. And if you're the person who the protective order is going to be against, say present, it'd be something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And and I guess they call the name. You're supposed to be sitting on opposite sides, but you did say it was a split session. So, yeah, well, they said something like, you know, Smith versus Smith. And when they, when the clerk or the, either the clerk or uh, maybe the ADA was calling that day, when they called, they were like witness present and they were sitting right beside each other, which is a huge no, no. Right. Okay. So that's and, what sparked it. And well, it's probably the first part of it and I missed it when it happened, but typically what will happen at that point is the bailiff will politely walk over and be like, you head on over there. I'll find your spot and like tell people to move around a little bit and like m separate them so that the judge doesn't lose it. But. Right, because um, I I will say uh, that that doesn't surprise me in the least. Uh, while there are very clear cases of uh, that warrant uh, the court's involvement, right? Um, unfortunately, uh, I would say starting in the two thousands, uh, so two thousand four. Uh, uh, DV orders became a joke a little bit. Um, and Do you it, mean from like the quantity? 
the quantity, the reasoning behind them. Uh, like, for example, somebody that you really needed a, a domestic right. violence yeah. protection order against, you wouldn't be sitting next to them in court. It wouldn't even be a thing. And so um, it became this weird quasi-judicial mechanism that people use in the weirdest ways. Um, and, I mean, I mean, wouldn't you agree with that statement? Like, the judge was absolutely right to call her out on that and say, like, you can't be sitting beside of him because it's a no-contact order, right? Yeah, with, like, and, and those orders, uh, they those were ex parte orders that, like, typically the order would already be in place. Because whatever had happened, a magistrate had issued it ex parte, which means for people, if, I, if we leave this in, uh, it means that like one party wasn't there. So because that's happened, the order's in effect. Right. And so in in the the true spirit of the word, of, of what it's supposed to represent, domestic violence uh, protection it's not a situation where you could like even physically bring yourself to sit beside that person because there's conflict. And that's what I mean when I say that, like if you're like, you know, sitting with the person, there's no reason for this order to be in place. Yeah. I'm sorry, but that's just how it is. Yeah. But I I think I, I I don't necessarily want to use the word joke, but I'll leave it in. And I'll say that, like, I would say some of it is farcical or kind of weird because um, the state can also issue a no contact order, not just ex parte, but also on behalf of a victim. Well, right. And, and OK, I, I want to say but domestic violence is very serious um, when it is domestic violence. OK, right. um, having an argument with your significant other and not winning and then going before a judge to bully them into whatever you're doing there. Right. If you're not genuinely afraid, um, these are things that can be taken care of outside of the courtroom and they're not domestic violence. Um, It is a mechanism that has been abused by uh, society, basically, in my opinion. Now, uh, people who really, unfortunately, what I've seen, uh, and it's true, sadly, um, most of the time, people who are truly, uh, people who are victims of domestic violence to the point that they are murdered in a domestic violence situation, they never had the opportunity to have any sort of domestic violence protection intervention, right? Yeah. Because that's sort of one of the elements that go along with what true domestic violence is. Um, The other thing I would say is, and the reason I take such a hard line on this is because if everything is domestic violence, then nothing is domestic violence, right? In terms of protections in the system, you're absolutely right. And it bothers me when I see it being abused or uh, used inappropriately because it means that it's taken that much less seriously when it actually needs to be there. But most of, you know, and, and it, there are penalties involved, you know, violating a court order to stay away from your um, domestic partner 
But ultimately, uh, you know, in real cases where there's domestic violence that's going to inevitably happen, those mean absolutely nothing to those people. I know. That's one of the things, like, like I, (laughs) it's just one of those situations where I thought it was interesting that that was the time that, you know, the kid comes to court and, like, all of this went down. And I was just, it was, uh, it was a very unusual, particularly for that judge, that courtroom, everything that was going on there, it was very unusual to see something like that happening. And then. She was just having a really bad day. Yep. It didn't sound, it doesn't seem like she tried to kill the judge, though. No, no. I mean, she she was just like kind of lumbering around because um, she was a really little person that was very, very pregnant. And like, I, I don't think uh, I don't think there was any substances involved or anything like that. I think she was just fed up with her significant other. She from the looks of it, by the number of people that were in the court with the two of them, she was fed up with her parents and his parents. And she was ready for that baby to be here. Well, and she was mention, ready for him to be whatever. That- that probably made a world of difference right there. The fact she was pregnant and going in, having to be in court, right? I mean, God, that's awful. Um, you know, uh, I hope that um, our earlier defendant we talked about with uh, Diabra Redden, was that yeah. his name? Um, I hope that, like, you know, he has now made a statement indicating he was having a bad day and wanted to kill the judge. And I feel like um, he could, he can just, you know, fall into obscurity and never talk about this to the media again, wouldn't you say? I hope so. Jeez, man. Uh, That's all I got, man. All right. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the crime excess code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime Excess. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXCESS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance. But plain water can be boring, and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode. Specifically, when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife, I use Cure to help me stay hydrated. It helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. Right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours, and I always have some Cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. 
Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution, or an ORS, that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners, and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Access will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality all-natural real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural whole food ingredients, and they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors, there's no colors or additives, and there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together, and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so... I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be X. Yes. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations. If you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. 
Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making. The hydration multiplier sugar-free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but it's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, white peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my, kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV hydration multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place, and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS, and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS, and it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. 
Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And then my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several new eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing, not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime Excess. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash true crime access you can also use the code true crime access at checkout that's it that's all you have to do and that's 15 percent off your order using the promo code true crime xs